the keepers of the status quo that brought us mass incarceration, the overcriminalization of poor black and brown people, tough sentences, no redemption and no second chances, won't give up their power quietly. Let us recall that the individuals making decisions about who's going to be charged, what they're going to be charged with, what sentence recommendations they're going to make. 95% of those prosecutors in this country are white. 79% are white men. And as women of color, we represent 1% of all elected prosecutors in the country. Our very presence challenge, challenges the status quo. If you believe we can change the narrative, if you believe we can change our communities, if you believe we can change the outcomes, then we can change the world. I'm Rob Richardson. Welcome to Disruption Now. So my special guest coming on is uh, State Attorney Marilyn Mosby with the city of Baltimore. Now, if you don't know much about her case, you should. She is uh, a disruptor. She is an innovator. She fits in with this show and our concept. We are about disrupting common narratives and constructs. And we like to highlight those who are disrupting and making a difference for good. She's one of those people. Uh, nearly, nearly all the world knows about George Floyd, how he was killed for eight minutes and 46 seconds. His life was drained out of him. Uh, many may not remember, though, Freddie Gray. Freddie Gray was the George Floyd before there was George Floyd. And Baltimore uh, was that place before Minnesota was. And before that, there was Ferguson. Before that, there was here Cincinnati, Ohio. <clears throat> it is the same pattern, different day, different decade. Uh, but it, it's been very hard to hold police accountable. It's very hard to do because the culture of policing doesn't allow that to happen. Uh, we are used to seeing those who, uh, who are police officers only as enforcers of the law, uh, not as violators. So when, when, when uh, officers violate the law, there are many uh, that can't see that. And then the second, is that, the second part of that is that, of course, most of the time, we're talking about a situation where the life taken was a person of color, was a black man, was a Latino. And, and the dehumanization plays into that. Uh, but after George Floyd, something awoke in this nation and it looks like people are starting to recognize that there has to be change. But uh, Marilyn Mosby was making that change before it was popular, before uh, people recognized it and she's paid the price for it. She's had death threats. Uh, her family's been threatened, she's been threatened, uh, but she doesn't allow that to internalize because uh, she recognizes that she's here to make change and she doesn't let anything get in the way of the mission. And that's why I hope you really enjoy this content, uh, that you learn something from it. And I hope you will go and support her. Uh, you can look up Marilyn Mosby. Uh, she needs support because she certainly is going to get a lot of political backlash. Uh, disruptors are, are, are liked, but they're liked after the fact. And in the middle of it, while you're serving, it's tough. So I, I applaud her. I applaud, I applaud what she's doing. I applaud what she's doing to change the narrative, to change the construct, to change what power looks like, to change what prosecution looks like here in this nation. Without any further ado, Marilyn Mosby. State Attorney Marilyn Mosby, it's an honor to have you on Disruption Now. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me, Rob. Uh, you know, I want to get right into it and really get to your your kind of why and how you started off knowing that you wanted to be a prosecutor. There's not a lot of people, particularly a lot of black women that know they want to be prosecutors at age 14, uh, but you have a, a very uh, uh, compelling and just actually very sad reason of, of watching some uh, tragic things happen uh, to your family. My understanding is your, your, your cousin was uh, killed outside of your family home when you were young and that's how you put in your mind that you wanted to be a prosecutor. Walk me through how that influenced, how that still influences your frame of thinking and how that really frames your worldview and in, 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 in being a prosecutor, particularly being a prosecutor that's an African-American woman. 
So I think, you know, at 14 years old, um, I grew up with my cousin who lived right next door to me, like brothers. We lived across from my grandparents. We have a very close family, large family in Boston, um, just like very many people of color in urban cities all across America. Um, and I grew up in what was called the police house. My whole family, my grandfather, my uncles, my mother, my father, everybody was, um, you know, police officers. And you somewhat feel sheltered in some sense um, right. until uh, I was 14 years old. And my cousin, who grew up with me like a brother, he was killed right outside of our home when he was mistaken as a neighborhood drug dealer. Um, it's an image that to this very day is still very much branded in my mind. Uh, I opened up the door and saw him laying in the streets. But if it wasn't for a neighbor who cooperated with police, testified in court, my family wouldn't have received any sort of justice. And so having to go into the courtrooms um, and seeing my cousin with all these dreams, all these aspirations, who's going to a grave, I was perplexed at this system. Um, you know, this young man was also only 17 years old, and he threw his life away. But I was also very intrigued at 14 years old because I had gone into the police stations, but never gone into the courtroom and seeing the number of African-Americans coming in and out in chains and shackles. Um, I said, what is the system and how do you reform it? How could we have gotten to that young man before he elected to take my cousin's life? And so the way that the prosecutor's office dealt with my family and they helped us through the grieving process, I said, this is a system that needs reform. And so I wasn't sure that I wanted to be a prosecutor at 14 years old. I knew that I wanted to reform this system that clearly was disproportionately impacting communities of color. And it wasn't until I got to law school and had the awesome opportunity of clerking for the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston, the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., Suffolk County Homicide Unit, and then served as a criminal defense attorney for a year, a student criminal defense attorney, that I understood the power and discretion of a prosecutor and how important um, systemic reform is, but systemic reform takes place from within. And I said this is a, a powerful way to be able to reform the criminal justice system. Now you said that your the how your how the prosecutor and others dealt with your family during the process was there some things that you thought I'm assuming the prosecutor was white that was dealing with you um, mm -hmm. was there some disconnect I mean even if the prosecutor he or she was doing their job was there something that you saw that was like okay this is this this can and should be done differently or what in that process it sounds like there was something there you said how you dealt with the process uh, obviously it sounds like you saw which is great, the fact that you didn't become jaded by this and say, okay, I need to become a prosecutor to make sure people like this get locked up all the time. Because that can be an easy view to have because when you're a victim of crime, it hurts and, and people, it's understandable, I think it's not a great way to go, but it's understandable people go from the mode of, okay, all criminals are bad because I had an experience with, uh, with the criminal, so all people must be this way. So I've, I've asked myself a lot of questions. One, uh, how did you prevent yourself from becoming to that point? Because I can say it could, it could easily reach that way. You know, when you see something like that done, that has to have some impact. How did you have the ability to step back and say, it's the system that's the problem, not necessarily this one individual that's affecting me at this time? Does my question make sense? It does make sense. I think it was, I definitely had a prosecutor and a victim witness advocate um, that exhibited a level of compassion um, for me and my family helped us through that grieving process and, you know, the court process, which is 
very different as a victim um, or the next of kin of a homicide victim than actually being, like I said, at a police station and going into right. court to watch your parents testify, right? Um, so it was, that level of compassion was something that I, I we definitely needed to help us through the grieving process. Um, but I didn't arrive at the determinate the decision of being a prosecutor and reforming the criminal right. justice system at 14, right? So you are at 14, very much um, still, you're just in so much pain and trying yeah. to figure out how to process what you are experiencing. But what I did understand at 14 years old is that this system was disproportionately impacting communities of color. That my community, for some reason, was not outraged by seeing yet another black man with all these dreams and all these aspirations being slaughtered in the streets. And so it was at that age that I really started to think about what can we do to reform this system? Because this system is, is impacting black men, not just in Baltimore, but all across this country. What can we do differently? So that's what started yeah. the process for me. And it wasn't until I got into law school and really understood the power and discretion of a prosecutor. Prosecutors are the ones who decide who's going to be charged, what they're going to be charged with, what sentence recommendations they're going to make. They make a determination if somebody's going to even get in or out of the criminal justice system in the first place. And when 95% of the prosecutors in this country are white and 79% are white men, as a woman of color, I represent 1%. You're a disruptor. You're a disruptor in the 1%. Automatically, automatically but you bring to the table your life experiences. And so what I understood from you know, our ancestors is that systemic reform comes from within. And if you really want to implode a system, uh, you have to do that from within. And that's, that's, why I became, I, that's why I became a prosecutor. People look at it too, when you think about it, they say system reform, that's something that's beyond me. I have no control over it. It's other people, it's those elected officials, it's here and there, it's, it's, I don't have any power, but you said it right. I mean, reform comes with within and collectively when we get there is how the system changes, but we all have to, we all have to do our part within. I mean, I think that's very well said and really deep. Uh, now take yourself back to, if you can, so you, you're, 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 you're in law school and mm -hmm. you start formulating this thought that you want to be a prosecutor in public service around this time. And now you have a whole load of experience, uh, positive, some challenging, um, that you can draw from and you know a lot of things now that you didn't know, I'm assuming at whatever age I was, 22. What advice would you give your younger self knowing the things you know now at that point? And what advice would you ignore from others or even yourself? So it's really funny that you asked that question. Um, I, I was part of <clears throat> one of the longest standing desegregation programs in the country where I was bused an hour out of the inner city of Boston to one of the richest towns in Massachusetts, where when I first started at six years old, I was the only black child in the entire school. And what I learned at six years old, right? Imagine being a six year old and the, the bus doors closing and you walking into a building and being the only one that looks like yourself. Um, is that, you know, when, when the young people would come up to me and they would say, you go girl. And I'm like, I don't, I don't talk like that. Why, why are you talking to me like that, right? And they're like, I could easily have taken an approach and, and, and taken offense 
or I could understand that it wasn't coming from a place of maliciousness. It was due to a lack of exposure. And so very early on, and as a baby at six years old, I understood the responsibility that was on my shoulder, right? Like I can be stereotypical or I can get angry and offended, um, or I can be a positive representation for black people. And I took on that responsibility at six years old and I can remember that my yearbook, I was president, uh, not president, I was SGA, co-editor of the school newspaper. I was bringing diversity workshops to the school. So from sixth grade until I graduated high school, I graduated and I was in honors classes, right? Like right. I was a positive representation of black people. And I can remember my yearbook quote. And I, 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 you say, what would I tell myself? But it was a Nikki Giovanni quote. I would not reject my strength, though it's not by choice, but responsibility. Mm. And that is so incredibly um, relevant to who and what I represent as the state's attorney for Baltimore City. Why, so, why is that important to you? Why is that? So you're giving your advice. Think of it this way. This is this 23, whatever, 20, I don't know, however old you were in, in, um, in a law school, probably extremely idealistic about what you're going to do, changes you're going to make, how you're going to make it. And now with the experience you have, I mean, I'm not, I'm sure you're still idealistic, but it also comes with a measure of uh, reality and, and some pushback that you've gotten. What do you, how does that quote, I guess, that you're the advice you're giving yourself, how would that have prepared you for what you're going through or what would you want yourself to know based upon that, that quote or advice? How does that relate? And then I would not obviously advice you would reject. So, I mean, the, the one thing is I would not reject my strength, right? Though it's not by choice, but responsibility. It's, it's, right. it's, it's never been about Marilyn Mosby. It's about what Marilyn Mosby represents to a criminal justice system where I represent 1% of all elected prosecutors in the country, where I can implode a system and reform a system from within, right? And so there's this perception. I know that I was one of the first prosecutors in, in Freddie Gray um, to attempt to hold police officers accountable. Yeah. And Being the first it, is hard, by the way. Let me tell you, I know it comes, with, <laughs> it comes with, you know, harassment and being ridiculed and being mocked and your competency being questioned for years. Right. Um, yeah, how, how, do you, how do you deal with that? Because you've had that. Sorry to interrupt you. And I want want you to finish your thought. But also, since you're going towards this, uh, you know, you've mentioned the fact that you already said it, that you're a disruptor by nature, by being the presence of who you are as being a black woman, being a prosecutor, only one percent of uh, prosecutors in the country are black females. Um, how do you deal with that? Because I think we all agree that you've been given a harder time because of that, but you don't allow that to jade you. It sounds like that's part of the uh, the quote that well, you Well, I mean, it ties back to the quote, right? You, you get hate mail, you get death threats. I yeah. was sued, right? Like when you think of all that has happened and the AP just did it, released a, a poll last week where they said that the, the overall general sentiment of, of Americans has, they're now aware of police and racial tensions in this country that yeah. they were not aware when I made the decision to charge the officers in Freddie Gray. Right. So I would say to my younger self and, and taking it back to the quote that, you know, change is hard um, and people are resistant to change, but to keep going and do not reject your strength. 
It's not about you. I had to learn very early on not to internalize it. That's it's a hard never lesson. about me. It's, it's a all, very hard lesson. It's still it's an ongoing lesson too. I'm, I'm sure I can say it for me. I've had to learn that that it's never about me. Even when someone's acting negative, it's all about them. Even even when someone is racist, it's all about their limitations. But it's easy to take it personally. And you, you're right. Removing yourself from the equation and making it about you will make it easier to, to, to deal with it and not react emotionally. I mean, I think that's but what I said. It goes even further. Like, it's not about you. It's bigger than you. It's about what you represent, yep. right? Like, back to that quote, that high school quote. It's about what you represent. Yeah. And I can point to several prosecutors, specifically Black women prosecutors who have been subsequently elected, who were inspired to run because they saw me in these positions. Aramis Ayala in Orlando, Kim Fox in Chicago, Kim Gardner in St. Louis, you know, the Rachel all of these women who are now disrupting and imploding the criminal justice system from yeah. within. And so it's never been about me. And understanding that, you know, is something that takes some time, but that's what I would remind myself. So you feel better about where the public is. You once said proof beyond a reasonable doubt becomes proof beyond all doubt when you deal with officers, because people are used to seeing officers as enforcers of the law, not violators of the law. You feel like this is the moment. I could, I know we you you dealt with Baltimore, and just so to make sure our listeners know, you dealt with uh, the Freddie Gray case, which he had a very a lot of similarities, which I want to get into with this case. And there were riots and demonstrations and protests, all of the above, mm-hmm. uh, in uh, Baltimore for a lot of days. And so, and I've I've dealt with in Cincinnati. We had the same thing happen. We had fourteen men die in custody from the Cincinnati police force. Uh, up until about 2001, uh, they shot and killed one, one, one officer shot and killed uh, Timothy Thomas. He was uh, a teenager and he was wanted for tickets and um, shot, and killed him. And so and this city repeats itself over and over again. I mean, we can be here all day talking about the cities and talk about the examples of when this has happened, how often it's happened. Do you feel like this is the moment, though, that, you know, America's at a at a turning point that they really honestly are seeing this? and understanding the, the level and the depth in any capacity. So yes, I'm, I'm, I'm inc- incredibly encouraged, right? I'm, I'm discouraged by the lack of leadership federally, but yeah, well, I am yeah. so- <laughs> Welcome to the club, yes. Can <laughs> right. the church say so, amen? Yes. <laughs> I am so incredibly encouraged by the real leaders who have been out there demanding change the veil of ignorance. I'm a Tuskegee graduate, so I'm going to bring it back to my All Tuskegee right. roots. The veil of ignorance. Um, Mods, regarding... Mods graduated from Tuskegee, so they'll be very happy. Okay. But the veil of ignorance regarding police relations and racial tension and police brutality have been lifted from Americans. And this is something that in a historical context, when you think about the police who have historically been the enforcers of a, a a criminal justice system that has disproportionately impacted people of color. It's been that way since we were brought here as slaves. Yes. With the slave codes, the enforcement of the slave codes, the abolishment of the 13th Amendment, where they, in essence, have on the law and in the books that, that you can dehumanize and, 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 and there's an exception for the dehumanization of slavery for those criminals. And then since that definition of criminal, what have we been defined as criminals? You look at Jim Crow, you look at the civil rights movement, you look at the war on drugs, which we now have confirmed was really a campaign against and a war against black people, right? And so, yes, historically, they have been the enforcers of this system. 
but you cannot underestimate the power and the dynamic of a prosecutor and that discretion and being able to hold one standard of justice for all. You see what happened in Minneapolis with Mike yep. Freeman. He exacerbated the distrust of that community. When he, he did. And he, pointed, he talked about you and all like all the way from Minnesota. Like, yeah, we don't want to be like that woman. Like, yes, you do. You want to actually hold accountable and have trust in the people. He actually mentioned you. Okay. He did I know you didn't take it personally. No, I don't take any of it personally. I did for you. I got a little upset, just so you know. <laughs> but he deflected from his inaction, and what he did was exacerbate that distrust. And you look at what, you know, Paul Howard did or Stephanie Morales in Portsmouth, Virginia, right? These are prosecutors who were unafraid to do their jobs, but a lot comes with it. A lot of intimidation comes Absolutely. with having the courage to do your job. So you can't underestimate the power of a prosecutor. Um, but in this moment, I'm incredibly encouraged because we can now take that protest and turn it into policy. Well, I think for the first time, um, uh, uh, Marilyn, um, uh, it's not AG, it's State Attorney Mosby. State so attorney. I'll say, I'll, I'll make sure to get the title right. Uh, for the first time, I think the majority, and I'm talking about our white brothers and sisters, are really seeing how policing really works because they're treating them like us. Like I, I like when I saw, I saw that police officer just run over that old white man, oh, let him yeah. bleed out. I mean, and then, you know, there's been example after example. I've seen people and I, and, I, and I had some of my white friends, even, even conservatives, are like, this is not a police state. And I just, I, I calmly responded. I said, yes, it is. It's always been a police state, at least since the war on drugs for the black community. You are Correct. now realizing the reality of how we live, how we have to interact with police. Again, it doesn't mean we're anti-police. We're just pro-own life and humanity. That's all, <laughs> right? We Correct. Wanna, See the humanity it. in people. We're anti-police brutality. And I mean... At the end of the day, what are we what are we really asking for? We're asking for you to see our humanity. And yep. and, and, and that's that's basically what we're asking for to, yes. to matter in order for all lives to matter. Black lives have to matter. It, isn't that something uh, that now Black Lives Matter is not uh, that is it took all this to make it not a controversial statement. Like now people are saying it's not controversial. It, it should have never been. The fact that it was controversial. I agree should tell you how far we have to go and that how much of an issue we have when it comes to humanity and fighting, frankly, white superiority, because that's not, that's not humanity. That's saying one person or one entity is better than uh, someone else. Uh, what lessons do you take away? Like when you compare your, uh, the, 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 the Freddie Gray case, how that happened and, and the George Floyd killing, what comparisons do you see in terms of how the events happen and what can you take from your experience that uh, can maybe be learning lessons for the nation moving forward, frankly, not only for Minnesota, but for others across this nation to, to learn from your experience? Because you were at the beginning and you were a disruptor. Uh, being a disruptor is uh, everyone likes to say they are, but when you're in it, uh, no one likes disruptors until after the fact. No one liked Mar Dr. Martin Luther King. Nobody liked. <laughs> I mean, we liked you. We loved you. Yes, I'm saying yes, the majority no, yes, of people do not like Martin Luther King has some type, I think it was 30% approval rating or something. Like everybody worships him now. Like he was, and they don't really speak to him accurately, but I don't want to go down that route. But the point is like, people do not, people do not like people that are challenging the system, even when the system needs to be challenged. So kudos to you for having the strength to do it. And I'm glad that you do, but what do you see from your situation, knowing that you were on the leading edge of progress, what can you take away from, uh, like I said, the story, how to apply, how the men's, I think the men's stories are, are very similar, but then also what you can take away after the fact uh, to make sure that we are uh, moving towards the right direction when it comes to reform in both policing and, 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 and with the criminal justice system. 
So, yeah, I think that there's a lot that I have to offer. And, you know, when I dropped the charges in Freddie Gray four years ago, I came out with a slate of, of, of police accountability reform proposals. And I said, on the record, um, you know, as I stood outside of Freddie Gray's home with his family and with my prosecutors that tried their hardest and their damn just to get a conviction, um, I can try this case a hundred times. And without these systemic reforms, without these changes in the systems that prevent police accountability, nothing will change. And so, you know, five years ago when I made the decision to prosecute police, Freddie Gray, an innocent 25-year-old black man who made eye contact with police in a high crime neighborhood and decided to run, it was unconstitutionally arrested, was placed in a metal wagon head first, feet shackled and handcuffed. His spine was partially severed in the back of that wagon and his pleas for medical attention were ignored. I followed the facts with the law and I wouldn't do anything differently. That accountability, which wasn't being had in this country when it came to holding police officers accountable for the deaths of black men, that accountability led to exposure. A week after I charged those officers, the Department of Justice came in, exposed the discriminatory policing practices of the eighth largest police department in the country. That exposure ultimately led to reform. And even despite the Trump administration that tried to stop it, we now have a federally enforceable consent decree. And because of that federally enforceable consent decree, we have a spotlight on one of the largest police, uh, the police departments in, in the country. And so although those individual officers weren't held individually and criminally responsible, every single police officer is being held accountable for the actions of a few. And I can point to tangible sort of reforms that were put in place, but there are still systems that need to change. Yep. So you look at like the mandates for officers to now seek out all prisoners, the mandates for officers to call a medic when requested, the use of force and de-escalation policies that emphasize the sanctity of life the affirmative duty and responsibility of an officer to intervene when their fellow officers cross the line, right? These are all tangible reforms that were put into place as a direct result of those charges. However, there were systems at play when we went to trial. The independence, the need for an independent investigatory agency. No profession should be investigating itself, right? Police department clearly sabotaged the Freddie Gray case. They had detectives that were witnesses in the case, but were assigned to investigating the case. And they tried to do the same thing to the uh, to the George Floyd case with the bogus uh, uh, with the bogus autopsy and everything else in the report that came oh, out. Oh no, that's the toxicology report. Toxicology that's what they start, do yes. when they want to leak information to villainize the victim. They did a lot of that in Freddie Gray, right? Like that's what you do to get your defendant's version and to get sympathy for the police officers, and that's mostly supported by the police unions that come hard against you politically and professionally. So inside of the courtroom, you, the officers often circumvent the, the communities that they serve. And that's what right. happened in Freddie Gray. When we tried the first officer, it was in front of a jury, it was a hung jury. Some felt he was guilty, some felt he was not guilty. It gave us the right to retry him. But what did he do the next time? He picked a judge trial. And then what the officer do after that, after the judge found him not guilty? He picked a, a bench trial in front of that same judge. And then the other officer, he picked a bench trial in front of that same judge. So it was wow. one judge that made the determination and did not believe in the theory of the case. Right? Which, is, which is why, to your point, very clearly, I'll let you finish, I tell people it's more important who your prosecutor is, who your judge is, and who your president is. When people talk about change, when you talk about going back to your point, change happens within, it happens locally as well within, and not just, say, and not just hoping that 
you know, we obviously need to change the leadership at the top, but that won't solve the problem. If you get the best leader you have you've ever seen, it, it won't matter if you don't make the change locally. This is why it's so important yeah. to support prosecutors like you that are willing to use their discretion appropriately, not just lock people away, and also use their discretion when it comes to holding police accountable when they've overstepped the line. Right, and I agree with you. And you know, oftentimes there's a debate as to whether an attorney general or an appointed state appointed position should go to a prosecutor and should they be the ones handling these police misconduct cases? Absolutely not. Your local prosecutor is elected by the people and is accounted, uh, accountable to the people. And if they don't do their job, you can vote them out. That's what should. happened in Ferguson. That's what happened in Chicago, right? Like you don't do your job, you should have to be accountable to the people who have elected you. But inside of that courtroom, that independence is incredibly important. There were search and seizure warrants that weren't executed. There were, you know, evidence that was being turned over to the defendants that weren't turned over to us that we found out in the middle of trial, right? There were so many ways in which any, no profession should be able to investigate their own, but especially right. when it comes to police. So that's incredibly important. Then the blue wall of silence is real. Right. Like that is real. So we would have officers that testify a certain way. And once we had to disclose who our witness was, the defense would get to them. And so by the time they testified on the stand, they were like this. I, I live in Baltimore. The home of witness intimidation with a stop station mentality began. Yep. Um, the irony of the fact that we want community members to step forward and to be able to put bad guys away, but there's a blue wall of silence. Oh, isn't that, that's that a really great point. I never heard anybody- from doing anything. I never heard anybody make the connection when people say, well, why won't people step forward in their own communities when you have police that won't testify against other police officers? Because, and let's be very clear about this, this is why you need substantive, cultural, systemic change. Correct. Because it's not just, like when people say it's one bad apple, the, the issue is, I, I tell people this, the issue is those bad apples are empowered to do things like kill people and there's no accountability because the culture, you can't go against the culture. That's it. And if you try, and if you try as an officer, I'm not excusing officers for not speaking up when they need to, but the reality is it's very tough to speak up against the culture when you have to go work for those folks again and again and the blue wall of silence will shut you out and make okay. your life extremely difficult as a police officer. But the, you're absolutely right. It's the culture of policing and what is what is enforced and exacerbated in that culture it are these fraternal orders, these police unions, like the fraternal yeah, order no of question. police, right? Like they put me on the cover of the um, fraternal order of police in New York and they referred to me as the wolf that lurks, right? Wow. On the front page because they understand the power of prosecutors to be able to apply that one standard and they don't want it. And so we got to change that culture and you are absolutely right because that in and of itself can be intimidating. So outside of the courtroom though, there are still systems that prevent police accountability and we've seen this all across the country. So you have the um, processes where we have officers that it's foreseeable that they're problematic, like in Minneapolis, yep. where you have an officer with 18 internal affairs complaints, right? And yet nobody seems to know. We need to make these processes transparent. These Brady lists, these Giglio lists, these internal affairs records, we need to make them accessible so that the public knows that when and if there are problematic officers in these departments. We have a number of states that have law enforcement bill of rights, right? That make it extremely difficult for police departments to be able to get rid of problematic officers and to yeah. fire them. Unlike 
what, you know, Keisha Lance Bottoms did, mayor in, in Atlanta, she came right out and accepted the resignation. And however, the other, um, possibly uh, the other chief went and immediately fired those officers, yep. right? That doesn't happen. The, the officers in, in Freddie Gray are still working in the yeah. police department because your hands are tied and we have to change these employment contracts that allow these problematic, problematic officers to remain. No, and last but certainly agree. not least, the other thing that I think that we need to consider is that civilian majority participation on these administrative trial boards. So when it comes to these officers determining what their administrative discipline is going to be, the, the panel shouldn't be stacked with their colleagues. It should be stacked with community members, right? It, it, a majority of it should be community members. Five Absolutely. of the officers in Freddie Gray were administratively charged. One wasn't charged because he finally decided to cooperate. Two of them pled guilty. And then the other two were acquitted because it's stacked with their colleagues. And then the last one was finally dismissed by the police department. We got to ensure that we have some level of accountability that goes outside of the courtroom. And those are the systems that exist that prevent police accountability. And that was, that, that was really great. I have, as we wrap up, really two quick uh, questions. Um, one, you said this is, uh, you all, you've said it's not about you and you're about the mission, which is great, but you still have a family. It still affects them. Uh, your husband's in public service. You guys are both in public service. So you guys both take the attacks. Everybody gets some attacks at some level, but yours is another level based upon the things we, we just went over. How do you explain this to your kids? It's one thing to say, you don't take it personally. It's a lot harder to deal with that when you're talking to your kids and you're dealing with these issues with your kids. How do you walk them through the some of this is trauma for you too. It's got to be. This is a traumatizing moment too. What's going on? And I'm sure it it's is. Triggering. And I've, it's, it's like invoking all sorts of emotions. I'm sure that it I'm is. Suppressed. <laughs> I'm sure it is. How do you how do you deal with it personally? How do you deal with it with your kids? And then I got one more question, and then uh, and then I will wrap up. So I I'm, I am very blessed. I, I think one of the reasons why my husband and I are together is because we both are very passionate about changing our communities. And he's a public servant, I'm a public servant. But what we try to instill in our children is very young, right? They're a part of this process. My children can tell you the name and each representative for every city council district in the city of Baltimore, right? Like they've been in this since they were three and five years old, which is when we first started running for office. And so I think that that's important because they understand that they individually have to contribute to change the trajectory of our communities. Um, I didn't expose them to the hate and the hate mail and the death threats. My husband was actually described, we got a letter during the height of Freddie Gray where he was described as being shot coming out of my house um, and how no police officers would respond. That's crazy. Um, you know, the, I, I have a hate, I have a book this big of hate mail and death threats. I didn't expose them to that, right? Um, so they're a little older now, and so they see mom on TV, and they can kind of put it into context, and they have, you know, iPads and technology, so they understand what's happening in, in the world, the greater, larger sort of global community. And so I think that, that instilling the importance and contribution of giving back to their community is something that they appreciate, and I don't know if they can quite understand they're soon to be 12 and 10 you know who mommy and daddy are but I, I think that they will at some point appreciate the sacrifices that even they make in order for us to do this job yeah kids are amazing um that was awesome final question you have a committee living or dead 
um, they can they can be live, they can be they can be uh, they can be dead or past us to advise you on policy, on life, whatever you want. Who are those three people and why? I would say Elijah Cummings, the late great Elijah Cummings, Congressman Cummings was a mentor to me, um, someone I respected, I, I admired still to this day, very much miss. Um, he was one of the first people I told when I was charging the officers in Freddie Gray, one of the first people I told when I was dropping the charges. And, you know, he was always there to support me. He supported me against an incumbent to allow me to win the seat. Um, he just was there and I miss him so dearly. He was just a wealth of knowledge and had a heart of gold um, and would be there. He just, everything about him was somebody yeah. that I, 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 you know, looked up to. I would say also Kamala Harris. Oh um, uh, yeah, that's my girl too. That, She's coming on the show, by the way. We're working that out. Okay, all right. Yeah. But yeah, Kamala is um, someone that I admired from afar prior to um, when I was in law school. She was one of the first and only black women prosecutors in the country at the time. She actually coined the smart on crime um, phrase and was doing a lot of progressive things in the height of the tough on crime sort of climate. And so she was a pioneer in this progressive movement and someone that I, I love and respect. When I was on my transition team and, and going into office, her and her team spent six hours with me, you know, just going through what needed to take place. And she she's always giving of her time and her talent whenever I need her in the height of Freddie Gray to, you know, running for reelection. This woman has been there for me and I just love, admire her strength, her passion and conviction to do her job and to do it the right way so her yeah. and then i guess the last person elijah kamala and who else i i would say um i would say somebody closer to me which would probably be my grandmother um you know she's a woman that was a circumstance she's a circumstance of her time and yeah. could have been any and everything but she was a matriarch of a beautiful family um, and someone who raised, my mother was 17 years old when she had me, so my grandmother raised me like her own. And so she was always my source of inspiration. Um, so I would say those three. All right, well, thank you, uh, State, State Attorney Marilyn Mosby. I wanna thank you for all your work. Know that you're, I am, that I appreciate you, that there are hundreds of thousands, probably millions of us that do. Uh, I hope to see you one day, hopefully run for governor or something and help change some things. I'm sure you have something uh, a bright few. You already had a, you already, you already done amazing things. I can't wait to see what you do in the future. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Rob. Have a good Thank day. You. you too. Marilyn Mosby. Um, if you guys got a chance to listen to that, um, the whole interview, I, I, I was moved and, and I think the most important lesson that uh, I took away, uh, and I hope you take away is that, you know, change starts within it's eternal. It's not up to somebody else. It's not up to the president. It's not up to Congress. It's not up to the Senate. It's not up to your governor. It is up to you. Change is eternal. Change requires you to be involved. Change requires you to step up. Uh, the system can only continue as it is through indifference. Uh, we can do a lot more to move things forward. We're seeing that right now at this moment, at this time. Uh, people are aware that changes need to occur. People are aware uh, of uh, racism in this country. Um, people were indifferent to it. They were asleep before. Uh, and as long as this can last, it doesn't have to last to this level. But if we are aware 
and awake and conscious that we don't have to accept things as they are right now. We don't have to have a criminal justice system that targets people of color, that targets black people, that targets Latinos, simply because it can. That shouldn't be allowed. We should have a criminal justice system that focuses on justice, that focuses on healing. Uh, we should have policing in this country that is focused on uh, keeping us safe and recognizing the humanity in all. Uh, I know there are good officers out there that's not the conversation we're having right now. The conversation we're having is changing the culture of policing. We don't have, our police should not be seen as the military. Uh, people in black and brown communities are not enemy combatants. We are citizens, we are humans, we are part of the United States of America, seeking to be fully part of this, seeking to make sure our humanity is respected. For that to happen, we're gonna all have to do more. Change is never easy, change is never comfortable. We're going to be going through this for a while and um, we're not going to arrive at some magic bullet despite any changes, but we have to keep persisting. We have to keep moving forward despite the odds, despite the pain, despite the circumstances. We can, we will overcome. I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, always, uh, if you get it, if you really did enjoy this, make sure you subscribe to my podcast. You can find me on all, all podcasts from Spotify to Apple iTunes to Google. Uh, you can also look us up on YouTube. Uh, obviously, subscribe, like. Uh, we love to hear more from you. I hope you got. A, I hope you really enjoyed this interview. I really, I really did, and I hope you took something away from it.